Hello and welcome to the Boss Podcast. This is episode 66 and as we delve once more into the selection of Boss Talks from previous years, I have the honour of bringing you a talk from my first Boss Conf at Europe in 2020, with Sally Foote looking at the stories your customers tell you. Business of Software podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Should you or shouldn't you listen to your customers? In this talk, Sally Foote, VP of e-commerce at GoCompare, shares her experience and expertise working with some high-profile digital businesses operating at scale to manage profitable growth and innovation in their organisations. Using examples of some of the stories she's heard from customers, she will explain how to use data-driven decision-making frameworks to identify profitable opportunities and why listening to your customers isn't always a good idea. Happy listening. Hi everyone, thanks so much Mark. So I'm Sally Foote, I'm the Vice President of E-Commerce at GoCompare, where I look after all of our digital marketing and then our, our product development at the moment, that's a website. Um, I've spent my career working in digital product really, primarily across news organisations like The Times, The Sunday Times, Guardian, spent a bit of time at Sky, and then Prior to my current role, I was Chief Innovation Officer at Photobox, and I've talked a lot uh, in the talk that we're going to play in a moment about my experiences of working directly with customers over the years to understand what was going on for them and to build product concepts out of that. Um, so looking forward to, hope you enjoy it, and looking forward to hearing your questions. So I want to talk to you today about how to talk to your customers. And I want to start off by saying that I think broadly everyone agrees that the number one reason products fail is because there hasn't been enough market research or customer testing done, right? When Colgate launched dinner entrees in 1982, this probably seemed like a really good idea. These products were like at the peak of their market and you can just imagine an executive board sitting around and thinking, yeah, we should definitely get into this space. But in retrospect, it seems highly unlikely that they ever sat an actual living human being who didn't work for Colgate in front of one of these products and asked them whether they would like their dinner produced by their toothpaste company. Or how about when Clarol launched Touch of Yogurt Shampoo? Um, again, this was following the market. It was very much on trend, uh, uh, very much a trend at the time to start including natural ingredients in your shampoo, like honey or herbs or, you know, yogurt. Um, believe it or not, there were actually two things wrong with this product. The first was that people didn't want their hair to smell like yogurt. And the second was that uh, there was some, actually some reported cases of people eating the, the, uh, the, sh- the shampoo, something you think might have shown up uh, in a focus group. But let's not leave this gallery of botches uh, to mashups between foods and, and, uh, and um, cosmetics. Much more recently, um, Google Glass mothballed in 2015, so not even that long ago. The whole idea behind this product was that it was supposed to be technology that worked for you. But it turned out that people didn't really want technology to work for them on their face, and they definitely didn't want it to work for them at that kind of price point or with those kinds of security concerns. Did Google really test this technology with any non-glass holes? Hmm. From the outside, it doesn't seem to us that 
anyone involved in developing these products spent any time talking to real customers about whether these were the types of things that they wanted. And it seems highly unlikely that if they'd done that, these products would have got to the market. True? Well, I'm not actually that sure. I think there's a very strong possibility that many of these products were informed by some level of testing or market research. And I'm saying that because I've seen firsthand how very easy it is to misinterpret what your customers are saying or to take what they're saying out of context or even to be asking them the, the wrong question altogether. I think what's more likely that to have happened here is that the product developers or the market researchers that were working on these products started to see a positive result in their tests and just ran with it. Um, they didn't question what they were doing enough. They just basically wanted to look for an answer and they started to see it and so they, they, they ran after it. In my um, previous role, I was Chief Innovation Officer at Photobox, and in my time there, I got to work on some really interesting projects, um, one of which was um, helping customers to make their, their photo books uh, more easily. And um, a few years ago, when, I, when we started looking at this problem, it seemed a very natural area for our AI team to focus on. And that was partly because they'd already developed some very clever photo science that meant you could look at an image, the algorithm could look at an image and understand what that image contained. But we also had about 20 years worth of photo albums that customers had made that we could use to train an algorithm on. And we could get to a point where we would be able to create other new, use new sets of photographs, new customers' photos to make albums based on what other people had done in the past. Seemed like a really good idea, right? So we spent quite a lot of time and energy developing the software. Um, and uh, when it was ready, we tested it with customers. And we did a, a diary study. So we got customers to make a photo book at home and we got them to record how long it took them to, to do so and all the tasks. And then we brought them in and we sat down with them and then got them in front of our new piece of um, software, got them to make their book again and we timed it. And what do you know, it was an 80% reduction in the amount of time it took uh, to make this photo book. And this was really significant because until this point, our customers had taken on average about eight hours to create a photo book and this isn't um, elapsed time this time can run over weeks or months even at photobox we had customers who start their um, album in january and finish it just in time for christmas so it's a significant improvement in this in this journey for customers in terms of making their books well we were really really pleased with this we were delighted we put it live and guess what, uh, no one used it. <laughs> so we had this pop-up that kind of came up as you start to make a book. And on one side it said, um, hey, use our amazing new AI to create your book. It'll be really fast and super easy and it won't take you any time at all. And on the other side it said, uh, or you can just carry on doing it the really hard way. And of course, everyone just carried on doing it the really hard way. And of course, we instantly, almost instantly realized what we had done wrong in our Research. What we had done was we had tested a solution. We had designed a piece of software and we tested that it functionally worked the way we had designed it. What we hadn't done was go back and really test that user problem. We hadn't checked that what we were solving for was really what customers wanted. So whenever you're doing testing, you may need to make sure that you're testing your understanding of the problem long before you begin to test the solution to that problem. When we went back and we looked at it, worked through it again with customers, we found that they did want help 
automating the creation of their photo books. They just didn't want it all automated. They wanted help with the boring bits like deleting duplicates or organizing photos from the same event like onto the same pages or you know, choosing layouts that would work for the shape and structure of their pictures. And we built all of that into the next version of the software, which you might have seen the ads for, and it's been, it's been very, very successful uh, for customers. After years of working in physical and digital product development, I'm more reliant on research than ever before. I've recently started a new job at Go Compare. So for those of you who are not deeply familiar, we're the ones with the moustache, not the meerkats. And I'm new to not only the company, but I'm new to the sector, the industry, basically everything about this is new to me. And so I have spent a lot of time over the last few weeks getting my hands on whatever I can to understand our customers and what they need. That includes digging out any existing research, I've spent time in the call centers, listening to customers on the phones, and my teams and I have been out watching customers using, uh, using our products, looking at our websites. I don't believe that you can do product development without research. But I also don't believe that you can do research without questioning what it is you believe from the results. What the hell do I mean by that? <laughs> well, I mean that you need to question everything you see, everything you think you've proven, every conclusion you draw, tested and tested again, making sure that you've correctly interpreted what is going on in that research and the results that you think you're seeing. Is everyone familiar with the uh, board game Jeopardy? It's based on a very famous American television program, a quiz show. And the basic premise is that there is a, um, a quiz master and instead of asking a question, he provides an answer and the contestants work out what the question is. And it occurred to me that it's so often the case uh, that we do that when we're conducting research. We set out with the answer that we want to frame and we frame and we set up all our questions in order to reach that answer. And of course, what we need to be doing is making sure that we are asking the right question. And of course, once I'd made that connection between board games and research, and I was trying to pull together this talk to keep you all entertained with a nice string of tidy metaphors that kept it all well connected together, I started to wonder whether we could use board games and the metaphor to, to stitch together some of the experiences and learnings uh, about how to get great results out of, out of talking to your customers. So let's roll that dice. Many people will be familiar with the rule in Scrabble that if you end up with a rack of consonants uh, and you're not playing the Welsh version, it does exist, uh, that you can take those consonants and you can throw them back in the bag. You, it's a risk, obviously, but the greater risk in some ways is to hang on to all of those in the hope that you might get enough vowels to be able to do something with them in your next turn. You might lose some points by doing that, but you're basically making a calculated risk and you're throwing back what you've seen or what you've got because it doesn't work for you and it's much harder to make some sense out of what you've got than to try again. And again, this is so often the case with research. You don't have to use everything that you get. It's much better to try and work out what's important um, from, from what you're seeing than to try and use everything that's, that, that you're seeing from your customers. A few years ago, well actually many years ago now, I was working with the time working for the Times and Sunday Times, and we were redesigning the homepage of, of Times, the Times Online as it was at the time. And um, as you can well imagine with a news website, 
the homepage is incredibly important. Most people who love and know the brand just come straight to that page every day. They don't really navigate it. They don't necessarily come to it through search. And they just use that as the main way to get to everything. All of the journalism that the Times has produced would be linked from that page. And that's what they would use to get around the site. Um, so we were having a lot of debate about what that should be on that page and how it should be structured. And so of course we went out to customers to test this. Um, what we did was a thing called a card sorting exercise, which is where you put all the features and ideas and things that you might want to put onto the homepage, you write them on cards, and you put them in front of people, and you get them to order them into a priority order in terms of things that are most important to them. And we must have done this with about 20 customers. Every single one of them put weather in the top three. <laughs> we just couldn't believe it. We were like, how is this? What is going on here? Why are people telling us that the weather is more important to them than all of our opinion journalism or all of our travel journalism, or all of these amazing pieces of work we do? This weather that we buy in as a cheap feed from the cheapest place we can get it is like the most important thing. Now, reflecting on it, you probably don't have to do a study to understand that weather is important to the British public, uh, that it's something we care about deeply and spend time talking about. And what was going on for people is that they were looking at all of these things that we put in front of them, and they were looking at weather, knowing that they cared about it, and they were putting it, weighting it quite highly in terms of their priority. What they weren't doing, which was actually our job, was to filter that with the context of the times. What should the times be focusing on? What was important for the times? So we changed the test just to be sure and we did two further tests. The first one we did was we drew out the page with all the kind of blocks and spaces on it and then we put the cards next to it and we got people to connect um, what they were interested in to spaces on the page. And of course weather got really small and tiny and it went right up the top. And then we did a second test where we removed the weather card and we just put in some blank cards in case people felt there were things that were missing that we hadn't included. And of course, no one wrote weather. And you can see my point here. It was our job to work out what was important for customers and to interpret what they were saying in the context of our business. Don't do everything your customers tell you. It's your job to work out what's right for your customers. Obviously, with the repetition of that test, we got a much better result, uh, a much better design, a much better page overall. At Photobox, um, I was looking after a lot of the physical products and we made a number of, of changes. And one of those changes that we made was to our calendars, which is, I've got one here to show you. And we removed uh, this plastic cover. Uh, few reasons for it, mainly because it was uh, fairly low, what well, was fairly high quality plastic, but it was unrecyclable and um, we got a better product at the end of it by removing it but also because we'd seen whenever we took this calendar into customer testing, what people would do is that they would just turn it over and hang it on the wall. And so we knew that there was kind of no real kind of functional value to, to, this, uh, to this plastic cover and we got a much better recyclable product by taking, taking it off. And uh, as soon as we released that, without having done any testing, we started to get feedback from our customers. And like, of course, some people noticed that the cover was missing, but we started to get some feedback on some other things. Like people started saying, oh, we don't like the new paper uh, or the new printing isn't so good. And we hadn't changed any of that. The only thing that we had done was remove this plastic cover. So we went back to testing to try and understand what was going on for our customers. But this is quite a difficult thing to test, right? Because 
if you just take two calendars and put them next to each other and you ask people what the difference is, they'll tell you that the cover has been removed. But what we were trying to understand was what was different? What was the thing that the cover was doing for customers that meant they felt differently about the whole calendar? And so we redesigned the test again. And what we did instead was we put a whole bunch of products into test, even though we weren't very interested in, in the other ones, including these two calendars. And we asked people to rate them on various criteria, like, um, for example, you know, uh, how high quality they thought it was. And what we started to notice was we started to see some other things coming out that told us a little bit more about what was going on. So, for example, people noticed um, that the calendar without Pascal was lighter and that was playing into their quality judgment. But they also rated it as more likely to get damaged in the post. And that was also very interesting. There was something going on as well that customers couldn't tell us about. Um, and that was, this took us a long time to work out because we worked it out by stitching together quite a lot of research over the years um, about what we knew about how people thought about their photographs. What we realized was that the calendar cover had been respecting the photograph. Um, let me explain. So, Photobox customers print photos of people that they love, their friends, their families, their pets, sometimes not people. And those photos are precious to them. They, uh, they talk about how it's really difficult for them to throw them away. They talk about um, how they don't like putting pins through them, for example. All of these things are really interesting, but it tells you the value of those pictures. So that's another reason why Photobox don't make this kind of stuff, suitcases, floor mats, um, table mats because bad things happen to those photographs <laughs> and um, and what we realized was going on with this calendar was that the plastic cover had been separating the picture on the front of the calendar from the outer packaging in which the, the calendar was posted and that was making people feel a little bit uncomfortable and we knew we were onto the right hypothesis because when we started doing things like we put a, a, a paper cover on or we wrapped it and put it back in, in the packaging, people started to feel much more comfortable about the calendar as a whole. We knew we'd finally nailed the insight of what was really bothering people. And the point here is that it took a lot of thinking and hard work and hypothesis forming to work out what was going on here. These insights are hard to come by. You have to stretch yourself intellectually and then you really have to take the effort to stitch together these insights and test them, working through creatively, finding ways to work out which one is the actual cause of the problem uh, or, or yeah, sometimes it's an opportunity you're testing out. At Photobox, I also launched um, this little product, which is a baby book. And it's got like, so it's a board book, it's got nice thick pages, and rounded corners and all that sort of thing. And we uh, put this into testing again and we started getting some interesting feedback um, quite early on, which was along the lines of, oh, we're not sure if it's robust enough and we're a little bit worried about like whether it's strong enough. And we couldn't understand this because, well, A, we developed it to like um, European standards in terms of baby stuff. And B, we like really stress tested it. So we'd thrown it about, we tried to tear it. I left one in my daughter's nursery for three months and took it home intact. So we couldn't work out what was going on. So um, eventually we noticed um, that it was at a particular point in the research that this started to emerge. I'm going to ask you to do something slightly strange, particularly because we're all over video conference, but I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for a moment because I really need you to listen. Sophie, just listen. I'm going to open this book now. 
Did you hear that, right? You heard it? Great. That is um, actually a completely natural sound. What happens is when the pages are glued together, you get a little bit of glue on the top of the spine here. And then when the cover is adhered or added on, the, the cover adheres to the pages. And then when you open it, it separates and you get a slight snapping sound or a creak in the spine. And this is what customers were hearing. And this is why they were worrying that the book wasn't robust enough. But you know what? No one said that. It was, they weren't able to tell us what was actually going on. We had to get there by asking them all sorts of questions. So, you know, we think it might be that. Is it, is it the corners? Is it the pages? Is it the bending? Is it the arc? It's the sound that you can hear. They weren't able to tell us exactly what's going on. And that's often quite true. Customers can't necessarily articulate what is going on for them. And it's only through these kind of detailed working through the scenarios that you get to what's really going on. So far, I've been talking about one main kind of research, face-to-face -face, um, interview style, focus group style. And these are incredibly powerful for getting deep behavioral insights into what's going on for your customers, understanding their motivations, understanding their thinking, just getting a real sense of, of what, what's going on for them. However, they have one major flaw, and that is that they are not real. How people behave in real life does not reflect itself necessarily in testing. How they say they're going to behave and how they really behave can often be two different, entirely different things. Recently, uh, my team and I were out at a research session looking at GoCompare's mobile site, and we were watching people use uh, the site on their phones. And we've had about six participants, and every single one of them got stuck on one field, which was the job title field, where you have to fill in your job title. And no one could find a matching job title. We've since fixed this, obviously, but um, it's a very interesting study nonetheless. Anyway, and um, of the people we had, um, about half of them weren't bothered. They were fairly confident insurance buyers and they just kind of found something that they're happy with and kind of cracked on. But the other half got completely stuck. They really didn't want to choose something that wasn't exactly right because they were worried that they would invalidate their insurance or they didn't quite know and they didn't know how to get help. And because there was a research assistant or a researcher sitting over their shoulder and kind of prompting them to continue, they, they went on to continue. We can tell you right now that in real life, not one single one of those people would have completed that journey. They would have left our site, they would have tried another site, or they would have stayed with their current insurer. And that's a really great example of where a test situation isn't going to give you a strong read on what is actually uh, going on, uh, going, going to happen in real life. Um, I know this as well because um, when we were working for the Times, we launched the Times and Sun the Times and Sunday Times payroll, we surveyed hundreds, well probably not hundreds, but a lot of people uh, on whether they would pay for the Times or not. And um, I can't remember a single focus group in which there were more people who said they would pay for the Times than not. And yet, um, six months after launch, there were 100,000 subscribers and four years later, a million subscribers. Another great example of the fact that things don't always um, uh, work out in real life the way that they would in a test scenario. So how do you get around that? Well, you need to make sure that you are finding a way to test in as real a situation as you possibly can. So if you are testing an e-commerce solution, whatever, get the person there with their credit card, get, take them all the way uh, through that journey. And that usually means 
getting out of the office. It means getting away from a test scenario. It means getting out of, from behind those one-way glasses and going to where things are really being done. So the more you can get into the real situation um, of where this task is going to be done, the better for your results. Um, another great example of this is I worked with a company called The Sale Room many years ago, and they're a marketplace that connects online auction houses with um, online people buying antiques. Um, so a really high volume um, uh, interaction site and really important that people have the information that they need, etc. And we were doing a piece of work to look at how we could evolve their, their solution. And so what we did was we went and sat at the desks of all of the people who were participating in these auctions and who were buying these auctions. And we found all of these nuggets of information. We didn't script the interviews. We didn't set up particular steps we wanted to go through. We just went and sat with them and watched what they were doing. And you could look at what browser tabs they had open alongside the sale room. You could look at the post-it notes on the sides of their computers, the piles of books and reference material that they had alongside their computers. You understood what their needs were through this transaction and what they and we found nuggets of ideas ways that we might be able to support them better the more you can get out to where people are doing things the better so far everything i've been talking about has also fallen very much into the category of qualitative research so working with smallish numbers of customers in a very hands-on detailed way but even once you've got those really interesting nuggets of insights, before we start investing in them and kind of really um, developing against them, you need to be sure that they're going to scale. So you need to make sure that those insights are relevant to a much wider portion or base of your customer base or a much wider slice of, of the population. And of course, the way to do that is with some quant research. Um, and ideally with your quant research, you want to be able to test a much larger number of customers at a lower cost and much faster. So thinking about the hypotheses that you formulated out of Quoll and finding ways to do that at a quant volume level. Now, there's a number of different ways to do this. And if you already have a live site, that's the place to start. For example, Google Analytics can help you, but more commonly tools like we have, for example, at Photobox, we use a tool called Usabilla, which is plugged into the website. Uh, people use that to leave feedback in the middle of the journey as they kind of doing stuff, they'll give us feedback on what's going on for them. But we also could use Usabilla to build a panel of our customers that we could survey on various options. And whenever we're looking at something, launching something new, we could insert parts into the journey to say, hey, give us your quick five minute feedback on this thing, X, Y, or Z that we're looking at. Um, you can also incorporate um, other types of tools in your, in your website. So for example, at Photobox, we use a tool called Quantum Metrics. And what this does is it basically allows us to watch any session on the site live. We can filter that by device, by location, by part of the site, or by particular type of interaction. So for example, we can look at, um, find anyone who is rage clicking, who's got frustrated with what they're trying to do, either because there's a bug or because we can find a place where the user experience is a bit broken and it's not clear to them how to proceed. It's a great way for us to find those types of problem areas. And then we can go and look at a large number of customers who are using that and see how they're behaving. If you are trying to launch a new feature or something new onto your site, then of course, AB or multivariant testing is a great way to be able to do that. Putting out different versions of the same feature and looking at how different segments of your customer population respond to those features. Incredibly powerful for e-commerce to see whether a change that you're making is actually going to work for your customers at scale. 
If you're testing something that isn't quite live yet, then again, there's a number of different ways to do that. And two of the most common here are um, a Wizard of Oz test. So this is where you put something live, pretending that it's automated. And in the meantime, there are a ton of people running around in the background making it happen. So with our photo book automation tool, for example, one of the ways that we might have tested that was with the Wizard of Oz test saying, hey, we'll create your book for you. And we could have done it in 48 hours in the background and sent it through, for example, to test the really test the appetite for that product in a wider base before we started to, to, to build it at scale. Another common test in this space is called a false door test. And this is where you put something live that isn't live. So you might say, hey, click here to download our app. And someone might go through to a page that says, coming soon, give us your email address um, and we'll be in touch with, with you about it. And of course that has two benefits. One, you get a volume test on the number of people who are interested in downloading the app, but also plus a ton of other related data. But you also get a prospect pool of people that you can get in touch with uh, when you're ready. And those are two great examples of ways to test on a live site about something new that, that you're starting to look at. So back to Jeopardy to finish off a final round of Jeopardy. So um, when you kind of come back to this question, you think about uh, everything I've been sort of talking about today. If the answer is that it's all about using lots of different tests to really validate the understanding of your customer and problems and needs, then the question, of course, is how should you listen to your customers? Don't be lazy. It isn't your customer's job to tell you the answer. It's your job to work it out from what they tell you. Thank you so much. Sponsored that one somehow. <laughs> uh, drop us an email if you'd like to sponsor the commercial breaks in the. Um, fantastic. Um, now, uh, I have one comment to make uh, about people closing their eyes. I'd be really curious and let us know in the uh, chat. Uh, number one, whether you closed your eyes. Mm. And number two, when you heard that crack, did you open them? Because <laughs> I've seen that bit three times now. And every time I've closed my eyes. <laughs> 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 uh, great. So uh, keep question, questions Nick, coming it's in. It's okay to open your eyes now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Don't forget the format here. There's a little Q&A button that you can put, um, you can put questions into. We'll uh, take them uh, one by one. Um, I firstly, just thank you very much for uh, uh, the, the, the talk. Um, thank you for having the forethought to make it so board game oriented because uh, that's given us a few ideas um, about uh, ways to spend more time with our uh, family in <laughs> profitable ways. <laughs> <laughs> right so sally please just tell them all to open their eyes i think this, <laughs> is, the, this is the challenge we have um but uh yeah from some some fantastic thoughts and some uh, some really really interesting things uh, gonna dive into questions straight away uh this is ed lepidus who i think is in brighton um, I really do look everybody up on LinkedIn when they register and uh, it's nice to know who they are and where they're talking to. So I think Ed's in um, uh, Brighton. What percentage? He's in Maidstone. Well, <laughs> that's basically Brighton. Anywhere that's south of Clapham um, in my uh, highly um, parochial view these days um, is, uh, yeah, okay, he's Maidstone. 
just because I did geography. I wasn't there for that lesson. What percentage of your time budgets do you spend on user research? How do you convince the business to start investing in user research? And how do you demonstrate ROI? Um, and I'm going to caveat that with um, there's a couple of things there. Percentages maybe aren't the right way to think about this, just because uh, I think the uh, budget for something like Go Compare is essentially infinity um, and a 10-person company. <laughs> um, but it's closer to infinity. Well, it's actually not yeah, closer to most infinity. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's a mathematical and philosophical discussion. But uh, yeah, how do, you, how do you sort of think about that? And, and, yeah, and I think there's that. a couple of things, right? So I'll sort of start with how we, we look at it. We budget for the year and in our annual budget cycle, we include a line um, for research. Uh, and then we decide how we're going to allocate that across the year based on how our strategy evolves or, or what we're particularly looking at. Um, but we also balance that line across different types of spend, right? So a lot of the, what I was talking about there, you might do with an agency or you might do yourselves, but we also budget within our research line for tools that we, that we might use for, so for example, for specific UX testing, where you're specifically looking at someone using your site versus the more sort of behavioral type of stuff that I was talking about where you might use more of an agency. I think the key thing here is to not feel constrained by your budget. Um, there is so much that you can do that is almost zero to very low cost from using um, uh, platforms to, to watch people or building panels from your customers that you can then talk to and watch what they're doing and talk to. Use your teams to do it. If you haven't got a big ad budget allocation, then encourage your teams to do it. I also um, have been through kind of a, a transformation of believing initially that research was best conducted by researchers and actually I've gone almost to the complete other side and I'm very, very insistent that um, designers and product people are deeply engaged with the research because I think they often get different insights out of it than someone who's designed a script might, might get out of it. It's really, really important that they're closely involved. Um, so sort of th that's sort of broadly what I'd say. In terms of demonstrating ROI, it's often easier to demonstrate um, the ROI of not having done the research, so projects that fail or don't develop and it's clear that you've not landed um, and all you need is one of those and you've got a very good case of being able to, um, to. but the, the kind of the immeasurable bit is the successes that you missed out on because you weren't working closely enough with your customers. Um, and it generally you find, yeah, it's, it's, a tough, it's a tough thing to do, but just those, those examples of where something really hasn't landed um, and it's because you haven't done your work. Mark, you're on mute. You are right. Uh, great, <laughs> we've got loads of questions coming in. Um, and uh, I'm gonna skip through some of these. Uh, can you tell us a bit about how your research team is set up and how you balance in-house versus agency research? Great sure, question. so we have, um, we have a head of, um, we call it um, customer, uh, customer experience, and she will head up our design and research team. We currently have one internal researcher, a customer research manager within my team, and she will look after all of our um, agency engagements, plus she will look after all of our internal tooling. But her main responsibility is making sure that we're getting the right insights from all of those places and that we're cross-fertilizing insights between each other so that we're making sure we're connecting the dots between stuff we're seeing um, but also to be interpreting what we're seeing and to making sure that that's communicated back into the teams and that we're taking action on it I think I was just thinking a little bit more about that ROI question and I think 
and I didn't talk about this in my talk, but one of the worst things you can do is to spend money on research and then not use it. So focusing what you're doing on a specific problem that you know you've got roadmapped and you know you're going to be tackling, um, focusing your research on that and then, and then actioning it um, to make sure that you're making the most out of it. Uh, these are great. Uh, how does luck play a part in getting the product right for your customers? Can you leverage what we understand about the part luck plays in more substantive ways than do more better research? This reminds me of um, David Brent's uh, approach to employment, which is avoid, avoid, avoid employing unlucky people by throwing half your CVs away before you've read them. Um, <laughs> about that one um yeah i'm slightly less of a believer in luck as an as an element in this and i probably i would say that given kind of what i do and my career but i i think this, the key thing to do is to break your research into multiple phases particularly if i'm also just uh chiari your question about you know how do you ask customers about something new and the first phase of that is the behavioral research so really understanding what's going on on for customers. And then the bit that comes in the middle of that, once you've got those insights of trying to understand the problems that they're trying to solve or what they're trying to do, the bit that comes in the middle that I would substitute for luck is the creativity and the ideas that you generate off the back of that before the next phase of research, which is more of the concept test. So where you've got a bunch of ideas, taking those in and testing those at multiple phases through, through your development. Um, so I'd argue that customer research is really uh, a completely anti-luck policy. <laughs> It's about um, not using luck to, to do product development. And it's about rigorously moving through a series of options and working through those to get to a result that you feel much more confident about. So many good questions. Testing takes time. That board book was in your daughter's nursery for three months. How do you balance <laughs> the need for research with the desire for early entrant advantage? <laughs> Yeah, and that's a great question. I think it has to be proportionate to what you're trying to do. That book very quickly became um, one of Photobox's biggest um, uh, products for the year. And there was another one that launched with it, which basically introduced two new lines. So it was absolutely worth the amount of effort that we spent testing it. Um, it was also pretty new to the uh, European market. There was American providers doing a book like that. So we knew because we were going to be first to market uh, sort of broadly within the UK um, and because it was going to be such a key product that we had to spend the time. Um, you can, I mean, with physical products, it's a little bit different, right? I think with live products, the sooner, with, sorry, with uh, digital products, the sooner you can get something live to your customers and get actual customers on it, the better. With physical products, we had one chance to set up our production line. Um, and so you want your production line to be set up right from the start. So it's slightly different process there. With, with, um, with digital products, I'm much more in the camp of using false door tests or Wizard of Oz tests or anything else you can think of, email campaigns, etc., to gather early feedback and to get people onto your product or onto your concept as early as possible, um, rather than those kind of longer lines that you might see with the physical product. Brilliant. We're going to crack through. There are just more and more coming in. Uh, if you're looking at a new market, what would you recommend for starting the market mapping process? And there are so many ways you can cut it. You just get lost in data and end up down a rabbit hole. That's from Flopsy Hornby. <laughs> yeah, complicated question. Um, and there's loads of great tools and techniques out there for this. Um, I'd recommend the Blue Ocean strategy um, for looking for a space that both 
one with low competitive um, or where you can gain competitive advantage and then obviously mapping that to core of what your business does. Um, if you connect with me on Twitter or LinkedIn, I can send you another piece of framework thing that I've done with um, other businesses before. I'm happy to share some of that stuff, but probably another whole talk just on that question, right? The angling to get invited back. <laughs> what do you think? Um, I'll be too busy with my broadcast career, Mark. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'm your agent now. So, uh, um, okay. Uh, thank you. We've got loads here. I, I, I hope maybe we could uh, set something up in the in the break potentially to have a little yeah room sure where people can come and uh, yeah or send me a message on slack um if we don't get through and I'll, I'll do my perfect. best to answer i can um, assure you we're not going to get the through them all four or five hours <laughs> <laughs> uh, i gosh how do you encourage developers to get involved in research what absolutely does that look like for you? we've got tomorrow we've got two days um of well wednesday and thursday we've got two days of research and our whole squads are invited and i'm really hoping to see loads of them there we've also opened it up to the wider company so the brand teams come our partnerships teams come who work with our insurers um, it's a really useful opportunity for anyone to get close to um, close to their customers and the fact that we're doing it all over conference makes it easier for people to do it from their desks and they don't have to go to a conference venue and stuff like that do they really like it i mean are they are they up for it are they excited about it yeah i mean we work in we're moving to a squad model and um so this is very different from kind of pure software teams so everyone in the team is responsible for thinking about and being involved in the decision about what to do next right because that is a balance between the problem you want to solve for customers the best way to execute the solution to that problem and then how difficult and complex it is to develop that solution so we want everyone in our teams to feel like they are there to solve for customers and they get gold on a customer goal customer okr and um and and that's what they're all working towards so yeah they, they are very interested in understanding and a lot of the great ideas in our teams come from from our developers our software engineers great uh again cracking on completely agree with the not slavishly following the outcome of tests any tips on how you handle the absurd accusation, I think you mean Colin Millichip, that you're not being objective, that you're picking and choosing until you get the outcome you want. <laughs> no one ever does that. Um, I don't think customers can, sorry, businesses can necessarily be objective. You, you are trying to solve for the balance between what people say and what your business does. And what you're trying to find is the intersection where between what you can do, what you, what you believe you should be doing in line with your strategy and a section of the population or your customers that that works for. Um, but the thing, you know, ultimately it's all in results. So um, being able to, the sooner, particularly again with software, the sooner you can get people onto your idea in a live kind of way, um, the, be the better you'll be able to demonstrate that the thing you're, you're proposing is, is correct. And I think the other question that comes up a lot is around the volume of people that you talk to. I think this is certainly one of the challenges that I've had at many organizations is you'll say, oh, we've drawn this conclusion and this is what we're going to do. And, uh, and then people will say, but you spoke to six people, like how can you, you know, have drawn that conclusion? 
Um, and I think, again, it's just been very clear within your organization explaining, you know, when you're looking for behavioral, on the behavioral side of things, for opportunities to explore, you probably do only need to speak to six or 10 people because some of the same behaviors start to emerge and you can see the patterns. Um, and then the key thing is to develop some prototype or idea of that concept and then to start developing the concept. Um, and that's why kind of early low volume and then higher volume on the on the concept once it's a bit further down the line is so so important great apologies if you have questions i'm uh, i got a little button which says that i get to dismiss them and it's not because i dismiss them as being important or interesting questions they all are i'm uh, triaging um and uh, there'll be some follow-up here uh, what are your thoughts on product testing when it comes to two-sided markets uh, should you test both markets at the same time Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we I've done a number of big B2B projects, primarily for B2B publishers, and we've done two things. So one is we've worked directly with people who were going to be um, the kind of consumers of that product um, and in a b2b setting you can go and sit at their actual desk and look at how they're using it um, what they need to be doing it's really actually great we've built out we we did a number of projects where we where we chose organizations who were our build partners uh, on that project um, and this is almost something certainly something that we would be doing at go compares like working with a, a, a smaller part of our number of our insurers who are interested in innovation and we would be working on a concept with them to bring it to market market um, and then at the same time we would absolutely be testing that with consumers so that whenever you're kind of we, we are a marketplace um, whenever you're looking at, at, at um, at that situation you have to be working with both sides because in the same way that we wouldn't do anything that didn't work for our insurers as well it wouldn't be successful if, if it was just solving uh, for our customers and our job as go compares to find the balance between those two things Brilliant. Do you do a lot of A-B testing at Go Compare? That was like a A-B We do. We're, we're at any one time we're running sort of two or three different A-B tests, um, depending on their size and scale and the volumes of the audience. We use Optimizely as our platform. Um, it's really good. We use it elsewhere. Um, we'll run tests on everything from um, uh, UX changes uh, to when we're ready to launch a new feature, we might run it. Um, and we also test our PPC ads and how they land onto our main landing pages through, through A-B testing. So we might test different versions of coffee and that type of thing. Cool. Okay. Uh, I'm going to leave. I have one final question to leave you with, but uh, I think there's a couple of things I'd like to uh, say here. I'd love to get you back to do another session. Not, I mean, I know there's loads going on, but uh, there's clearly lots of people that have have things to um, ask you about, and uh, you know, lots of lots of things kind of uh, throwing around. So one of the things that we'll be doing post this event is actually running a series of um, well maybe we'll become a SaaS based subscription business where we have kind of weekly or monthly or bi-weekly or whatever it is um, sessions like this so I think uh, it'd be awesome to get you back in and, and, and take some questions on that when you've got a bit more time um, but uh, our final question from Kiara how do you ask questions or do research when you're leading customers into a new area where they haven't had a solution before. It's a great question. Choosing between A or B when customers uh, don't know what A or B are. Yeah, the key thing is to split out um, the behavioral research. So when you're looking at a new area, 
what's the thing you're solving for, really understanding what's going on for customers, and then separating that out from the concept testing. So, um, for example, um, we're doing a piece of research tomorrow on um, renewals around car insurance and how people think about uh, how, how they think about that, what's going on for them, what information they have available to them, uh, where, how they go look and see who they're currently insured with, how they think about the price, etc. And what we will not do in that is we won't test any of the ideas that we've got because we don't know that those are good ideas yet. We're just trying to prove what the, what the space looks like and understand kind of where the big problem areas are. And then we'll almost certainly go back to a second round where we will basically say, here's some ideas that we can work them through. There might just be pen sketches at that point, And we'll start to look through kind of where some of the concepts are. And then there'll probably be a third round of testing where we evolve and develop that. And then ideally we would quickly start to try and get people onto some of the big concepts that we might be looking at. But that's the key thing is when you're trying to do something new, the worst thing you can do is go in and ask people, do you want this? Do you want this? Do you want this? You have to start with, okay, you're in this moment, you're trying to do this thing, what's going on for you? Uh, what have you got in front of you? What information have you got? What's hard, what's easy? And really understanding uh, their behaviors. If you are enjoying the podcast and would like to receive new boss talks and articles direct to your inbox, why not sign up for the Boss Newsletter? A free regular email jam-packed with boss goodness. Sign up now at businessofsoftware.org slash updates. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.